Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. The Book of Genesis, Chapter 7, Verses 6-10, through 10, English Standard Version In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. The Book of Genesis, Chapter 8, Verses 13 and 14, English Standard Version Hello! Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay, here in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we're continuing our series on Noah and the Ark, one of the best known of all the Bible stories. It's a story that's so well known that even small children know about it. It's a story that has spawned not only movies and television shows, but also inspired an untold number of depictions in every format from stuffed animals to ceramic dinnerware. R.D., what made you decide you wanted to revisit a story which is so well known that even people who don't identify as Christians can at least give you the broad outlines of the story? Well, the widespread awareness of the story of Noah and the Ark is both a curse and a blessing. It's a blessing because the story draws people to the Bible. And anything that draws people to the Bible is a good thing. But it can be a curse because so many of the, let's call them, artistic depictions that we see of the story in art pieces or things that are in the home goods stores, especially the pieces that are created for children, so many of those artistic depictions result in the genuine story of God's grace being transformed into something that more closely resembles a fairy tale or a Hollywood cartoon portrayal of just some mystical story. If they're not done carefully, they have a tendency to demean the historicity of the original story And this, of course, unfortunately reduces the inspiration and relevance that the original story actually contains, particularly the relevance that the story has to the overall covenant of grace, to the overall covenant of redemption. And that, of course, is one of the reasons Anchored by Truth is doing this discussion series on the story. And it's also the reason we produced a humor series about it. We call this humor series Life Lessons with a Laugh. We use them to encourage people to go back to the Bible and especially to think about details within the various Bible stories that often escape everyday notice. We think today's life lesson may point out a couple of details in Noah's story that people sometimes gloss over, but are really important. So let's get started with Episode 3 of the Life Lessons We Can Learn from the Story of Noah and the Ark. Hi. 
I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books, here today at a new location as we continue to focus on the life lessons we can gather from the story of Noe and the Ark. I think you mean Noah. Uh, that's the more mundane pronunciation. And what is that smell? Given our exotic setting, I went a little upscale. Upscale? I wish I were upwind. <laughs> Yikes! Is that an ostrich? There are dozens of them in this pen. An emu, my ornithology challenge chum. My bird-befuddled bud. My pheasant-flustered friend. Uh, don't tell me. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Your nose should be telling your tongue. It's time to step outside. It's Jerry. Sure, Jeroma. Jerry. Now that's a name that will perfume your day. And I'm going to need some kind of perfume if we're going to be here long. Just long enough to absorb the aroma and atmosphere of the emu pen here at Aunt Ida's Emu, Eggplant, Endive, and Eugenia Emporium and Eatery. I thought this setting would inspire us to contemplate the vast variety of variegated vegetation environments that currently exist on the earth thanks to Norbert's inspired seamanship. Still think it's Noah. And the only thing I'm inspired to do right now is buy an ark full of air freshener. Well, I think our setting has already inspired you to a fresh insight, Jeroma, because that would be a lot of air freshener. Do you realize that according to the dimensions described in the Bible, the ark would have had the capacity of about 2,000 railroad cars? Wow, that's crazy. 17, 18, 19. Each of which could hold 80 to 100 sheep. Man, that's a huge boat. But I think it would take that much freshener to put a dent into what I'm experiencing. Excellent, Jeroma. You have just pointed out another thing about Noah's experience with the flood and ark. The atmosphere inside a sealed vessel toting that many animals would have been, mm, shall we say, pungently fragrant. Shall we say I would have wanted to sleep on deck? Perhaps not the best place for repose while gale force winds and skyscraper sized waves are lashing to deck, my nasally delicate mate. But the Bible says the rain only lasted for 40 days, whereas Noah and his family were in the ark for over a year. So maybe there was a chance for some shuffleboard topside after the rain let up. Yeah, inside a sealed boat for over a year with your family. I hope they all have brought some really interesting reading material. 753, 754, 755. Well, they may not have had a lot of spare time on their hands, Jer Bear. You know, they probably had quite a few things occupying their attention. There being a fairly large passenger list of animals that needed watering, feeding, and tending and all. Not to mention stall cleaning which wouldn't be a bad idea around here either. Ah, your keen understanding of the finer points of animal husbandry is certainly on display today. Of course, for some of the critters, the crews must have been pure bliss, like the dung beetles, for instance. After all, the Bible says there were two of every kind of land animal, as well as birds and creepy crawlies that came on board. Yeah, it would have been okay with me if they had left off some of the creepy crawlies, like the ancestor of that big one on the wall over there. How many animals do you think booked passage? Can't be certain, Jerkat. I'm not an expert on mid-third millennial B.C. zoology, mammalogy, entomology, and ornithology. Whoa. What was all that? 
Zoology, mammology, entomology, ornithology. Zoology, mammology, entomology, ornithology. Zoology, mammology, entomology, ornithology. Zoology, mammology, entomology, ornithology. Even today, there are less than 300 main species of land animals bigger than sheep, and only about 700 species between sheep and rat-sized. There would have been plenty of room on board a boat with space for almost 200,000 sheep, even with carrying all their food. Still, space planning must have been a real pain. Probably not the best idea for some pairs to share cabin space with others. Plus, imagine the dining room at mealtime. No, you can't seat the anteater next to the ants again. Remember what almost happened last time? Thankfully, the zebra stepped on the anteater's tongue when he was going around the porcupine. Anywho, the Bible is clear that the whole voyage was the Lord's idea, so I'm pretty sure he was helping Noah with the details, including how to make sure the right animals got on board and got along during the trip. Hmm, you don't think about that much, do you? That even though the Bible says that the Lord shut them in the ark, that doesn't mean he stayed on the outside. Exactamundo, giraffe. No matter how much the storm rages outside, the Lord has always promised he will stay with you, inside or outside. Top side, port side. 1463, 1464. Ooh, cool horn. One, two, three. Hey, what's that buzzing light in your pocket? Aunt Ida's system for letting me know my emu egg omelet is ready inside the eatery, where it smells like bacon and cinnamon buns. Ah, Germay, your knack for knowing how to nullify your nutritional needs never nosedives. Life may stink and drive you to the brink, but obey God's command and he'll provide a fan. So don't blink at the stink's brink. Stand on his plan and obey his command. Again, Jerbon, some tasty bites of truth out of that big box of gooey buns of biblical wisdom. The secret is to make sure your hands are clean so you can lick your fingers to get all the icing. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Emu crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where... We're not famous, but our boss is. Okay. That piece had some truly amazing parts. First is how many different variants you can manage to come up with for Jerry and Noah's names. Second, what's the information about the cargo capacity of the Ark? I'm sure some people would wonder where those numbers came from. The capacity estimate for the Ark that we used in the life lesson can be found in a book called The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, written by Dr. Gleason L. Archer. And Dr. Archer was a truly gifted biblical scholar and theologian. He would go back to the original Hebrew or Greek documents when he was trying to resolve difficulty with a particular passage. One of the things that I like about Dr. Archer's encyclopedia is that he provides the analytical process for the reader to go through rather than just making pronouncements about what the actual meaning of a particular passage or the short answer to a question might be. So when it's discussing questions like how big is the ark, how large was Noah's ark, they can see the entire reasoning process that Dr. Archer used. Now, Dr. Archer used a cubit that was 24 inches. Many interpreters of the Bible believe that a cubit was probably closer to 18 inches. 
There were Sumerian cubits and Hittite cubits, and those tended to be more in the range of 20 to 21 inches. So there are varying lengths for the cubit. It's not known with precision what it was, but in any case, even using the smallest dimensions of the cubit, the ark would have been a very big boat. But anyone who would like to get more information about that topic particularly can consult Dr. Archer's Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. So when you're talking about how various scenes from the story appear in popular culture, one of the things we're thinking about is the cartoonish versions of the drawings of the Ark that show a bunch of animals all stuffed into a slightly stylish boat, more suited for a bathtub than a biblical flood. Right? Right. As we've been discussing, it's become commonplace in our day and time to regard the story of Noah and a worldwide flood as either just an allegorical tale or an outright myth. And especially in our popular culture, Noah's story is rarely regarded as actual history. But that's exactly how the Bible treats it. The Bible treats Noah's story as actual history. Now, one of the ways that we can demonstrate that the story of Noah is literal history is to show how the various details contained in the Bible account are entirely reasonable in light of science and history. But before we get too much into the discussion of the evidence that supports the authenticity and historicity of the biblical account, we need to make sure that we know a little bit more about the use of evidence as it applies to historical events. You're thinking about the fact that many people don't have a clear distinction about how evidence used for purposes of verifying historical events has to be kept in appropriate perspective. Historical verification is not the same thing as operational verification. We have to be careful about the use of terms here. Some people might say that science can't prove or disprove history, and while that's true in a strict, narrow sense, It is not true that science or other relevant disciplines can't shed important light on the reliability of historical accounts. Exactly. Operational science, if you will, is different from forensic or historical science. I mean, someone who wants to confirm that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level can just put a pot of water on the stove, turn on the heat, and check the temperature at which it boils. So confirming operational scientific details are fairly easy. But it becomes more complicated when you're talking about how those kinds of scientific approaches apply to historical events. See, a forensic scientist may be able to tell you that a particular gun fired a particular bullet, but the forensic scientist can't tell you whether or not a particular person was holding the gun when it was fired. Because even if there were fingerprints on the gun, it's possible that that person picked up the gun before or after the gun was fired in the commission of a particular crime. So science can certainly be used in the validation or verification of history. It's used in historical events that pertain to criminal activity all the time. But you have to be more careful when you are using that science to make sure you know exactly what the science is telling you and what it's not telling you. We have to start by recognizing that when we are considering the validity of past events, All investigators can only look at evidence and then interpret what that evidence tells us about the past. No operational scientist can look at a piece of evidence and tell you exactly what that evidence means about a particular historical detail. They can tell you whether or not that evidence confirms one particular possibility or discounts another possibility. 
So we just need to be sure that we're using evidence properly when it comes to verifying or validating historical events such as the flood. So what you're saying is that there is a subtle difference between the evidence itself and the interpretation of the evidence. We might all be able to agree on the nature of the evidence, but that does not mean that we would all agree on the interpretation of the evidence. Right. And another thing we need to establish up front is that all investigators, all interpreters of evidence bring a viewpoint, a lens through which they interpret the evidence. Now, I'm hesitant to say that they bring a bias because that word can have a negative connotation. But we should certainly be aware of our interpretive lens. And again, that's true of all people who are reviewing evidence, all investigators, whether they are scientists or non-scientists, whoever it is. Everyone brings an interpretive lens to their view of evidence. And this is particularly important to be aware of when it comes to evaluating the historicity of Bible events. That is a very important point. Today, Bible critics may try to criticize, say, a geologist who believes that the Earth's crust provides evidence that a worldwide flood occurred by saying the geologist is a Christian. But that criticism would be no more valid than someone criticizing a non-Christian geologist who doesn't believe a flood occurred by pointing out that the geologist isn't a Christian. It's no more fair to say that a Christian geologist can't interpret geologic evidence fairly than to say that a non-Christian geologist can't. Precisely. Particularly when it comes to looking at events recounted in the Bible, our culture has developed a tendency to look more critically at opinions offered by scientists who identify themselves as Christians than it does for those who don't. But this is unwarranted and unfair. It is fair to be aware of the lens through which each may view evidence, but it is absolutely incorrect to believe that a non-Christian scientist does not bring just as much of an interpretive lens as the Christian scientist does, because they do. So we need to keep those points in mind as we move forward toward our examination of the evidence that supports the historicity of the Bible flood account. Where do you want to start? Well, let's take a look at the various areas that are obviously involved in the story. By doing that, we can start to see the broad outlines of the evidence that is pertinent to the determination of the story's historicity. There are at least four major areas where we ought to be able to find some validation of a worldwide flood from which a group of humans and animals were saved on a giant boat. What are those four areas? Well, we ought to be able to find some evidence that pertains to the origin and after effects of the flood itself, the ark, the animals, and the anthropological and genetic implications that would be inherent in that kind of an event where massive numbers of people on the earth were killed. So, by origin, I'm obviously thinking about the very basic question, where did all that water come from? By after effects, I'm including the paleontological and geological evidence that we should be able to see if the earth was at one time suddenly inundated under a massive volume of water. And, well, I think the questions that we need to talk about with respect to the ark and the animals are pretty self-evident. I think the first three areas you mentioned are pretty obvious. Most people would understand that those are areas where we should see evidence of a catastrophic flood. But what do you mean by the anthropological and genetic implications? Well, let's remember that the Bible not only treats the story of the Noahic flood as literal history, But also, the Bible treats the story of Adam and Eve as mankind's first parents as literal history. 
you know, as such, all the people on the earth are descended from Adam and Eve. Now, there was a period of about 1,500 years between Adam and Noah. So, in that period of 1,500 years between Adam and Noah, the earth's population had grown to at least hundreds of thousands of people, and more likely millions. So, when you have this flood that destroyed everyone on earth but Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons, and Noah's daughters-in-law, Obviously, everyone who has lived since Noah is a direct descendant of just those eight people. In other words, the flood produced a huge bottleneck in the human population. Well, that bottleneck is going to have genetic implications for the current world's population. But of course, also, when we're talking about anthropological details, the flood was obviously a very traumatic event for those eight people who lived through it. So, for the rest of their lives, they would talk about it. They would talk about it to their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids, etc. The Bible says that Noah lived for 350 years after the end of the flood. That's more time than the United States has been in existence as a country. So, Noah could personally have told the flood story to thousands of people, or maybe even tens of thousands of people, who would have repeated the story. Now, they would have repeated the story, and they would have repeated it in whole or in part, but they might have repeated the story accurately or inaccurately. So one of the episodes that we're doing in this series, we're going to take a look at what I call the story of the story. Well, that's obviously more than we have time to get into today, but I think we can get at least started. Since we introduced the idea of the ark's size in our humor piece, Are there other features about the Bible's description of the Ark itself that help tell us that the Bible story is historically reliable? Absolutely. So let's get back not just to the Ark's overall size, but to the actual dimensions that the Bible says that God gave to Noah and what Noah was to do with the roof. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, God told Noah, The Ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. So, one of the things we see immediately is that the ark's dimensions give us important information about the ark's stability. The ark's dimensions, as given in the Bible, use the classic 6 to 1 ratio that is a staple of modern naval architecture. In general, the safety of a ship on the open ocean is going to be related to three major safety parameters, structural safety, overturning stability, and sea-keeping quality. And this 6 to 1 ratio that's used in modern naval architecture is very well recognized as being a parameter that provides for good sea-keeping stability out on the open ocean. The dimensions that are given in the ark produce a vessel that is very stable in an ocean-going environment, and scale model tests and wave tanks have suggested that the ark could endure wave heights without overturning as high as 100 feet. Those tests were done in the early 1990s in Korea Research Institute of Ships and Engineering's large towing tank with a wave-generating system in order to validate the theoretical analysis. And in the written notes that accompany the podcast version of this show, we've put links to a couple of good articles available through the internet on this subject. But in addition to the ark's basic dimensions, the part of Noah leaving a one-cubit opening below the roofline also is important, isn't it? Yes. 
It's pretty obvious that opening would have been important for ventilation, as well, of course, for giving the passenger some light from outside during the day. But it also would have been important for another reason that's not so obvious. With a boat as large as the Ark carrying the load of animals that it did, the heat load that was being produced within the boat would have been considerable. So by leaving an opening right below the roof, all that internal heat would have had a way to escape. And that would have been not only for comfort, but also for safety. So again, what we see is that the Bible story makes perfect sense when we compare how the story stacks up against real-world considerations. The details we are given about the ark produce a boat that is not only seaworthy, but one that has a high degree of stability in rough seas. And even the detail we are given about leaving an opening large enough to allow heat to escape, but not so large it would have endangered the boat, makes sense with what we know about the Ark's purpose and performance. Exactly. Now, one final reminder for today. As we move through our discussions about Noah and the Flood, what we are trying to do is provide the listeners with a framework from which they can continue their own investigations. There are a lot of good, biblically grounded websites that can provide far more information than we have time to cover in these shows. Now, one of my favorite websites, especially for this kind of information, is creation.com, which is the website for Creation Ministries International. And I would also highly recommend that listeners get a copy of Dr. Jonathan Sarfati's commentary on the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which he called the Genesis account. Because Dr. Sarfati provides not only a linguistic and theological discussion of those chapters of the Bible, but he also provides a very thorough scientific discussion that very effectively supports the validity of the biblical account of creation. Sounds intriguing and interesting. And it sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from the book Purposeful Prayers, Seeking to Pray Like Jesus. It's a prayer for Christian missionaries, some of whom carry the good news of Jesus all around the world. We should be missionaries to our own families and neighbors. A Prayer for Christian Missionaries Father of Redemption, you are a powerful and loving God and our ever-faithful tower of refuge and strength. You are a God who takes pleasure in rescuing lost sheep and in bringing them into your kingdom. You are the God of the ends and the means. May all the earth sing praises to your name. Lord, the Bible rightly asks how the lost can hear of the salvation available through Christ's life, death, and resurrection unless preachers are sent to proclaim the gospel. We know they cannot, and today, A great many of your faithful people continue to leave their families and homes to travel to remote corners to preach your message of hope and good news. Today, we want to pray for all these missionaries and to thank you for your provision of them. Lord, we know that many missionaries preach the gospel in lands where your word is not welcome. In fact, In some lands, to speak about you brings a sentence of death. We know that there are many places where government leaders and authorities will exercise the full power of their offices to oppose and persecute your messengers. Therefore, we pray for special protection for all those who preach in these dangerous countries and places. We ask that you watch over these missionaries 
protecting them as they travel and minister and confounding the efforts of those who seek their harm. We also pray that you give them fertile fields in which to plant your word, which is the seed of true life. We pray that you would open the hearts of those who hear the word. Give them the courage to accept Christ, even as they risk their lives to do so. Bring leaders out of the converted so that ministries and churches once begun will continue to grow and expand. Provide the resources the missionaries and churches need to sustain themselves, whether it be Bibles, educational literature, money, or resources for daily living. Show us how you would have us help and serve in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. While not all are called to go or preach, we know that there is a way that all of us can contribute. Help us to be persistent in our prayers and make us fervent in our desire to see your word spread and your kingdom grow. Christ commanded that his word be spread until he returns again. So in his holy name, we pray for his kingdom and his messengers. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.